Okay, are the kids still here or they gone to kids' church already? All right, I think they have. All right. The Lord is salvation, part two, from Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 to 13. Uh, we are in a series in our church called Encounters with God. Now, last week we introduced the prophet Isaiah, whose, whose ministry, whose prophetic ministry was during the 8th century before Christ. And, and this morning we look at the remarkable encounter. So last week we set up his life, but this morning we look at the remarkable encounter he had with God in the temple precincts. It was also his call to the prophetic ministry. And the passage before us is, 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 is actually one of the great passages in the Bible because of the description it gives of God and what he did for us. So, it, in that sense, um, it, it is a very special passage. So, hopefully this morning we can uh, untangle it a little bit. First of all, we look at what he saw in verses 1 to 2. What he saw. In the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple Above him were the seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two flying. It's interesting, interesting here that while most prophets place their commission or their call at the beginning of their, of their book, Isaiah presents his call here in chapter 6 because it fits with the wider message it contains. Also, it, it is... It is somewhat strange that this prophet, Isaiah, dated his call to service by the death of a king. Um, you must understand that in, in, in history, in ancient history, the, there was actually no way of saying you were born in such and such a date. You always place your date or the date when, alongside some significant event and usually with the rise and fall of kings and that type of thing. So here, um, Uzziah does it with the death of a king. And it's very likely that Isaiah was actually related to King Uzziah and would have been his, it's quite possible that it was his cousin according to Jewish tradition. Now King Uzziah, who was he? He was... Uh, he had a long and distinguished reign in Judah in the south. He began his reign at the age of years, 16. So that was pretty young. And he reigned for 52 years. Overall, he was a good king, which is a rare, is a rare thing in Israel. Uzziah was a builder, a planner and a military general. And unfortunately, he did something that as a king he was not allowed to do reserved only for the priests in the temple. And because of this, he was struck down by God with leprosy and he died a sad death in isolation. So to say in the year King Uzziah died is to mourn the death of a king who did a lot of good but whose life came to a tragic end. So yes... Isaiah had a great reason to, to be mourning and I suppose somewhat even disillusioned at the death of 
the king Uzziah. And you're probably asking, where was the Lord in all of this? Where is God when events of national or international significance happen? Well, the sovereign Lord was sitting on the throne, still in charge of all creation. And God now will show him what this means. Don't worry about it, is the message. Uzziah may no longer be on the throne, but I'm still on mine, is the message. A core belief A core belief in atheism or materialism is that there is no throne. There is no authority in the universe to whom you must answer to. This is all there is, the material world. In Buddhism, everything is part of the one and there is no hierarchy. We are all part of a whole. God, us, animals, bees, microbes, we're all part of the one. In humanism, there is a throne, but man sits upon it. In the words of the Greek philosopher Protagoras, man is the measure of all things. What we are witnessing today in our world is what happens when man becomes the measure of all things. Back in the book of Judges, we read... Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. I will run my own life, thank you very much. But it's, it's, it's more than that. And, and it's, it's, for us, it's happening. Particularly those of us who were born decades ago, there, there is a shift that is happening. And, and it is, you know, you, you, You have to spare a thought for those who are being born in this day and age. What on earth is going to happen? As as the whole, there's a polar shift somewhere. And it's more than just sorting between good and evil. Now we have to sort between the normal and just the plain weird. Let me give you one example. The Wall Street Journal had an article on Terry O'Hara who visited a ranch in Colorado to talk with the animals. Now, I talk to my dogs. You do, probably. Um, I sort of know when when, when they're scared, when they're hungry, that type of thing, right? But this is next level. Just listen. She says she takes telepathic images that reveals animals' inner thoughts, be they profound or mundane. Miss O'Hara strolls through the barn, mingles with the herd and sits down with the poultry. She held telepathic sessions with the guinea pigs. The, the miniature steer is miffed. And this is what she heard. This is what she's hearing, right? The miniature steer is myth that the male pig has a female companion and he, he doesn't. Right. Doesn't stop there. The alpacas, the, the alpacas divulge cliques are forming among the volunteer ranch hands. And this is horrible. The hens complain that the rooster is abusive. 
Now, you're probably interested in, in booking this person. Uh, if you want to book Miss O'Hara, she has a three-week waiting list for appointments. Just a description. This is just a small, right? Now, back to Isaiah. Isaiah's vision happened in the temple precincts in Jerusalem. And while standing back, Isaiah could could see that only the train of the Lord's long robe filled the temple. There wasn't any room for anything else. Because the temple uh, was the symbol, was, was, was God's presence on earth. The temple was that which connected heaven and earth. That's why the temple was so important. And the word seraph in Hebrew means fiery one. These were the angels. They were the fiery ones. And these angels each had three pairs of wings. They covered their faces because they could not gaze into the glory of God. They covered their feet because the feet were symbols of of impurity. With two they flew. That's what he saw. But let's now see what he heard in verses 3 and 4. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook and the temple was filled with smoke. Now the seraphim are not directly addressing the Lord but calling out to one another, possibly in an antiphonal uh, manner. At the sound of their voices, the whole temple started shaking and filled with smoke. They, they are proclaiming God's glorious nature and character in his presence. He's watching. He's hearing all of this. Now, what is holiness? Holiness, at its very root, describes someone or something which is set apart from other people or other things. That's what holy or holiness means. So what is the Lord set apart from? Well, he is set apart from creation. He he created the world, but he is not part of creation. He is not a creature. And he exists outside of creation. If all of creation were to dissolve and disappear, he would still remain. He is set apart from humanity in that his nature or essence is divine, not human. And I know that we sometimes use human terms to describe God and that's many times how the Bible uses language to help us understand a little bit. But God is not Superman. He's not an uber-man in Nietzsche's language. God is not merely smarter than us, stronger than us, older than us, or better than us. Yes, he's all that. But we simply have no way to be not God with our ruler. Any standard that we use will simply not suffice. And it wasn't enough to simply say that the Lord was holy. In, in the Hebrew language, intensity is communicated by repetition. 
You don't just say it once. You say it again and again and again. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. Is to declare his holiness in the highest possible degree. It also points to the Trinity. Saying it three times, God in three persons. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Even though this is not the strongest argument, Calvin said, to, to prove the Trinity, it is there. And the holiness of God will be, interestingly, it will be an emphasis in the rest of the book of Isaiah. 26 times it will be declared the Holy One of Israel. Also, His glory is not restricted to the temple but covers the whole earth. It's not just the temple that is holy. You know, and then once we leave the temple, once we leave the church, then we can do whatever we want. Right? No, he's saying his glory covers all of the earth. God is interested in your behaviour in the temple and outside the temple. Simply look around at creation. Out in the bush, one of the special moments tends to happen at night when you better get out of bed and you know, as you get older, you tend to do the thing more often, I suppose. But you get to have a glimpse and uh, look at the heavens in all its glory if it's a clear night and you say, wow, wow, amazing. Something that in the city is a little bit harder to contemplate. And then you can say wow to that and then you can contemplate the face of a beautiful little boy as we just did. Not even a year old yet. And How can you look at the face of an innocent little boy and say, isn't this child made in the image of God? Exactly right. Fearfully and wonderfully made. How can you look at, a, at little Noah and say he's simply a, a random act of evolution? King David said, For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. Do we know that full well? I hope we do. What he experienced, verses 5 to 7. Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King of the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. And with it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Now, by all appearances, Isaiah wasn't a bad fellow. He seemed, he seemed to be like a righteous, godly man. He wasn't too bad. Yet when he saw the Lord of hosts on his throne, he could see 
how sinful he was in comparison. And the more clear no, comparison. The more clearly he saw the Lord, the more clearly he saw how bad his state was. And all he could say was, woe is me. I'm so unworthy of what I'm seeing. I cannot possibly outlive or survive this experience. The man who, as a prophet, would pronounce God's woes on others, on the nation and the surrounding nations, first had to pronounce woe on himself. Did you notice that? He is including himself with the rest of the population. He doesn't set himself apart as above or anything like this. I'm one of you. I'm one of the ones who, unless by God's mercy, I'm I'm done for. He doesn't plead for mercy or even make a vow if somehow God would spare his life. A man of unclean lips, living with unclean people. No hope at all, unless, unless God does something. And out of the depths of his grace, that's exactly what he does. And the atonement, the atonement, the word for atonement is a covering. The atonement for sin was provided by way of a hot coal. Remember that these angels are called the fiery ones. And we have the picture of fire. One angel flew to Isaiah with a live coal still hot and burning. And Isaiah had complained about having unclean lips. So the angel brings the coal and touches his lips with it. It would have been painful, you would think, because the lips are a pretty sensitive part. But Isaiah doesn't even complain about the pain. What he's happy about is the fact that his sin has been atoned for. Fire, you see, is is fascinating, but it can also be terrifying. It seems like a a very long time ago that Australia was getting, you know, all that that bushfire was happening out of control. Fire can destroy, burn for days, but fire can also cleanse. This is what happens when purifying gold. And as we know, fire can also convert mass into energy, which is what happens with coal. You burn coal, it turns it into energy. And the Bible describes our Lord as a consuming fire. And the reason for that is his holiness. And he burns up anything unholy. But it is with the fire of God's own purity that the repentant, those who humble themselves, they are being made holy. In and of ourselves, we cannot make ourselves pure. It has to be done from outside. You can wash yourself, you can do all the sacrifices and and do all the things that you think is going to make you right before God. You haven't got a chance. Neither have I. Only God can make us clean. And he did it through Jesus Christ on the cross. And this is one of the great verses in the Bible and it leading up to Easter. 
In the Christian world, it's known as the season of Lent. And this is a great verse, Romans 5.8. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In and of ourselves, we had no hope. He did what he had to do because he loved us. We can only accept it or reject it. And I hope and pray that those of us who are here accept his sacrifice for us and surrender our lives to Christ. And what he accepted, verses 8, verse 8, just verse 8, Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And I said, Here am I, send me. Now this is the first time that God actually speaks in our passage And he does so because Isaiah previously was not yet ready to hear before this moment. Okay, He first had to be purified by God to understand his commission. And here in chapter 6, as in Isaiah chapter 40, we have the heavenly counsel, it's in the plural, who will go for us? Now what would you do if you were Isaiah? You have just witnessed the creator of the universe in his holiness, believing that you were going to be obliterated by his presence. Instead, he decides out of his own mercy and love to purify and to forgive your sins, making it possible for you to share in his holiness. How would you answer? Oh, let me think about it. Give me some time. Well, if you were Moses, you would have answered, please send someone else. If you were Jeremiah, you would have said, I am too young, Lord. If you were Gideon, you would put out the fleece, trying to make sure it was really God who was speaking to you. If you were Jonah, as we saw, you would simply just run away. What we see is that Isaiah is a rare breed. He answers, here I am, send me. He puts his hand up. And he puts his hand up even before he knows his mission, which is going to be a tough one. So what did he actually sign up for in verses 9 to 13? And he said, go and tell these people, be ever hearing but never understanding, be ever seeing but never perceiving. Make the heart of these people callous, make their ears dull and close their eyes. Otherwise they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Now this passage has generated quite a lot of uh, debate over the years. And I don't think it's so much that we, we don't understand it. What we struggle with is accepting it, what it's saying. Sobering words. Sobering words. And and they are sobering words. This is an important passage because it is quoted in all of the four Gospels and is quoted in the book of Acts. Both Jesus and the Apostle Paul use this. They quote this in in their ministry. In Matthew 13, for example, Jesus explains that the reason he uses parables, in Matthew 13, the parable of the sower, the reason he uses parables is to illustrate truth 
to those with eyes to see and ears to hear. But he also uses parables to blind those who willfully reject truth. Those who receive the word will receive more, but those who are willfully rejecting will, whatever they have even received will be taken from them. And for Isaiah, these words are the result of his preaching. This is the effect of his ministry. This is the effect that his preaching will have on people. In human terms, his ministry is going to be a failure. He is going to be a loser. Failures. One of us. Who is who's attracted to, to losers and, and failures? Most people are attracted to winners. And those who are successful in their field of endeavour, including pastors, we want to be known as winners. We're growing church. Worldwide ministry. But in the Bible, always, we have to go back to the Bible, the message is more important than the messenger. Always. Messengers come and go. People like Paul Mosichuk will come and go. There will be others. But the message remains. Because this is not mine. I'm, the, I'm simply sharing what God has given us all those years ago. Messengers are simply tools in God's hands. Really, tools. And there are more tools than others. I just hope that many of my colleagues understand this when you're puffing yourself up. You're nothing, mate. You're less than nothing. But so after he heard the job description, Isaiah might have thought, that doesn't sound too exciting, does it? Ah, maybe I can do it for a little while. So the follow-up question from Isaiah is, for how long? Right? Yeah, and this is a natural question to ask, because even if soldiers, if they're going overseas on, for a battle, they're usually given a briefing as to how long they consider the battle's going to last. They want to know if it's going to be a sacrifice, if it's going to be a really hard thing. I want to know for how long am I committing myself to this. It's a difficult commission, isn't it? And if the job description was tough, then I'm sure that God's answer was not what Isaiah was prepared for. God didn't say to him, mate, don't worry, it's only for a little while. (laughs) No. God didn't even reveal to him the number of years. In the Bible, um, the number of years and times and stuff like this is not always revealed. In fact, most of the times it's just hidden. And he answered, and he answered, this is God's answer. And so he says, until the cities lie ruined and without inhabitant, until the houses are left deserted and the fields ruined and ravaged, until the Lord has sent everyone far away and the land is but as a sacred, and though a tenth remains in the land, it will again be laid waste, but as the terebinth and oak have stumps, 
when they are cut down, so the holy seed will be a stump in the land. Again, that doesn't sound too optimistic, does it? And yes, because of Israel's sin and rebellion, the difficult days were ahead and judgment was inevitable. Some 150 years later, the Babylonians came in, destroyed everything and took the people into exile. But this, this wonderful chapter actually concludes with a note of hope in verse 13. The holy seed will be the stump in the land. And then later in chapter 11 of Isaiah, verse 1, a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots a branch will bear fruit. Who is that? Jesus. Jesus. Like a root, like a shoot out of dry ground. So Israel's hardness of heart would, would continue till the nation was destroyed, brought down like a tree to the level of a stump. A few months ago in Sora, I didn't caught, I, I walked to the back paddock after a storm and saw a gum tree on the ground. Sheared right off at the, uh, at the trunk, right off. The stump was still upright, but the rest of the tree on the ground. It looked like the tree was gone for all money. But if you go and look at it now, the stump is still there and there are shoots coming right around it. Another tree is growing in its place because of the life that was in the stump. Jesse was King David's father. Jesus came from the line of David. David sat on the throne for a while. His descendant Uzziah sat on the throne for a while. But Jesus sits on the throne forever. This is the truth that we celebrate on Easter Sunday. His exaltation. He is the the only righteous one who, who lived the perfect life. Through faith in him, we share in his blessings. We share in his holiness. And this is the same Jesus who calls us who invites us into a relationship with him. And not until you you see your, your unworthiness will you be able to share in his glory. Not until you see your unworthiness will you be able to accept his atonement. For Isaiah, it was a coal taken from the throne. For us, it's Jesus Christ giving his life for us on the cross. The perfect atonement. For your sin and mine. May God bless us as we contemplate on the goodness of God. Because it's not us, it's all about Him, which is what this next song is about. <clears throat>